Thanks for that great reading, Sandra. I've got two boys, one's named Sam and one's named Eli, and you'd think that we maybe used this cute little story when we were naming our sons, but actually, they're named after hobbits. And when Sam was a little preschooler, some friends of ours stopped by one day with a great big bag of outgrown Halloween costumes. In that bag, there were wigs and belts and silly hats and dress-up clothes. And in that collection, Sam found for himself a Scooby-Doo suit. And I'm not going to share a picture with you for those of you who are online because that's going a step too far. But everyone call to mind a little boy in a fawny, full-body suit made out of that cheap, felty fabric. And it had a long tail and Scooby-Doo's trademark SD collar cheaply stitched onto it. And it came with a simple sort of hood with Scooby ears and a snap chin. Sam loved it. Loved it. It wasn't anywhere near close to Halloween, but he started wearing that suit every day. Every single day. We laundered it as needed while he was sleeping. And then each morning, Sam would put Scooby-Doo on fresh each day. Day after day, Sam exclusively wore that Scooby-Doo costume until, even, even with its missing hood and a hastily sewn on and then stapled on tail, there were growing holes in the knees, and he was deadly serious about that suit until one day when it completely fell to shreds almost a year later. I really, really miss those days. Exuberance and devotion to that flimsy little suit, that adorable little goober in our home with all of his imagination and innocence reminding me and everyone in our house the way that life is precious and sometimes silly. Every morning, Sam was an emissary. He was a messenger from the land of make-believe, a proclaimer of good tidings in a world of regular, normal, serious clothes. Sometimes you pick the Scooby-Doo suit. Maybe every day. Maybe every day you pick the Scooby-Doo suit. Little Samuel from today's story may not have dressed like Scooby-Doo. But his mom did sew him an adorable little priest's robes, a fresh one every year. Can't we all just picture that tiny little priest in those little robes? So cute. Now you'll have to track back a few chapters to read the story of Samuel, the miracle child, the boy reserved since birth a real-time, in-person living offering given in service. That little boy running around in the temple, a child underfoot in a totally grown-up world, overhearing adult conversations that may not have been appropriate, developing comical patterns of speech that he would have no doubt picked up from hanging around with old priests and temple staff every day, people saying, 
That sounds exactly like something that Eli would say, of course. But this isn't just a cute story about a boy who grew up in the church. Before Jerusalem became the center of worship for the Israelite people, a shrine at a place called Shiloh in Samaria was where it all happened. This was the site of ritual worship and prayer, the sanctuary for the Ark of the Covenant, the home of the priests and the spiritual leaders. And in that place, the generational priests, the descendants of Aaron, the OG high priest, those people tended to the many practices of worship for a very, very young nation. They facilitated sacrifice and prayer and holy ceremonies and tradition. They were keepers of sacred space. They were national treasures. This was a profoundly holy calling, a responsibility. And this is a story about a man's failure in that role. The catastrophic collapse of his sacred calling and the intervening voice of God. How long had old Eli been on cruise control? Years? Decades even? Who can say? Was he a priest with no passion or vision? Getting up each morning to put on priest's robes, going through the motions, a keeper of book knowledge. Maintainer of lip service. The story tells us that Eli's eyesight was beginning to fail him, but that wasn't the old priest's only difficulty with vision, was it? His whole view of the world was foggy. Was it a lack of insight? Awareness? Courage? Was he self-deluded? Was he weary? Was it all of the above? The writer does tell us that the word of the Lord was scarce in those days, and maybe Eli just quit paying attention. Whatever the shape of his failings, Eli had been blind. Blind to the flagrant corruption in the temple brought about by his own family, his sons. Priests tasked with the same sacred duty. Spiritual leaders who were just the worst sort of people, using their own positions of power. And it's not said here in the the text that we read today, but they were extorting sexual favors from temple workers, exploiting tradition and influence to steal from the congregation. The people that they served publicly, they were shamelessly ripping off. These men were desecrators, of the sacred shrine at Shiloh, a national disgrace. What does it look like when spiritual leaders lose touch with their vocation, leaving their sacred calling, exploiting their positions of influence? Well, it's sad to say that we have no shortage of examples in our own time, do we? Many of us, have been deeply hurt, gravely wounded by people like this. Lord, have mercy. 
Eli's sons may have been a disaster, but his adoptive son Samuel was a spiritual prodigy, it turns out. Three times in the night the Lord called out to the boy, and each time Samuel mistook the voice of God for the voice of the old priest. Of course he did. Three times Eli sent him back to bed with a glass of water and a stuffy. But then, Eli, for a moment, truly opened his eyes. And in that moment, with that insight, the disgraced priest was a pastor and a spiritual mentor one more time. Which makes it all the more tragic, doesn't it? The man had it in him. Ironically enough, Eli became the facilitator of his own prophetic undoing. Eli told the boy, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It's good advice. And when the Lord spoke once more, Samuel responded, and the Lord said, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. Yeah, it's... Really bad news for Eli and his family. Words of judgment on him and his sons. Before we get too broken up about old tragic Eli, it's worth taking a moment to consider all the characters in this story who aren't named. These words of judgment would also happen to be words of hope. Words of hope for women who had prayed for justice. Good news for so many others who had been cheated and exploited. People who wondered if they had been seen and heard. Ears would be tingling, all right. Now, I can't imagine Eli getting very much sleep as he lay in the next room the rest of that night. The trained and ordained priest in his bed in the next room, staring at the wall or the ceiling while the boy, the child in his pajamas, is talking with the living God. The next morning, Samuel was understandably hesitant. If you keep reading in the story as it plays out, Samuel Samuel would actually become a man who made a lifetime's work of delivering bad news. But there's a first time for everything. And to his credit, Eli knows that the jig is up. Was it a relief in its own way? Finally, a break from all the pretending, all the energy spent rationalizing, compartmentalizing, and making excuses. Give it to me straight, kid. Let's not mess about. This is a word from the Lord, and let's do this thing. And so Samuel, the little prophet, didn't hold back. He unloaded the full-throated declaration of judgment on Eli and his family, and the old priest took it, all of it. Maybe in some ways Eli didn't need a prophet to tell him what he already knew. What a gift it is to be a part of a community of faith, 
assembled to be this people in this place for this time, together bending our ears as we listen for the Spirit, straining to see when the path is dark, speaking words of hope, sharing insight and wisdom when we find it, because there are many times when each of us lacks vision, wisdom, understanding, Our blind spots and our biases so often obscuring our view of the world. The gift of this life together called the church is that none of us have to do any of this alone. None of us have to live in isolated darkness. Because the people in the thick of it with us are instruments of God's purposes in our lives whatever their age or experience or status or education. For this time in this place, may we be clear-eyed people, listening people, keepers and builders of sanctuary in its truest and best sense, active and passionate in our care for one another, the people that we are blessed to know and live with, and the people that we are called to speak up for and look out for. Friends, we are seen. We are heard. And our shared vocation is the care of this world. May we be people who are deadly serious about things like justice and mercy living lives of courageous love. And may we be receptive, even, maybe especially, to challenging conversations, hard lessons of growth and learning. As the spirit of creation speaks to us in gentle, barely there nudges, in sudden, earth-shattering realizations, in the words of friends, all in the shared space of this life together. 